plants and microorganisms, especially the mycorrhizal fungi, evolve together. And, you know, plants and animals and microorganisms all evolve together. And we've worked very intensely in agriculture, uh, especially for about the last 70 years, to kind of decouple all of those things. Yeah. And we need to put them all back together and focus on the synergies because it doesn't work to just say that we can come along with a, a, a chemical or with a replacement, whether it's, you know, synthetic fertilizers or uh, mineral fertilizers that are organic, that isn't coupling those things back together. That is, it, it's still us saying, okay, we can control all of this stuff that goes on. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an ad on organic food label to distinguish soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from Dr. Chris Nichols. She's a soil microbiologist who is well-known throughout the organic community, having specialized in mycorrhizae and the sticky glomalin that they excrete to kind of help capture carbon in the soil. She has lent her voice to over 250 speaking presentations and was in the popular film, Kiss the Ground. She has so much to share about soil and all of the relationships and interactions there that help plants grow. You don't want to miss a word if you're a farmer or a gardener or an eater, so let's get to it. So I'm speaking today with Chris Nichols. She's a leading scientist in the movement for healthy agricultural soils. Right on, Chris. Chris has a master's degree in microbiology from West Virginia University and a PhD in soil science from the University of Maryland. She was the scientist for the Rodale Institute and is currently the founder and principal scientist of Chris Systems Education and Consultation. And she's the research director with Mylan Company. She's a soil microbiologist with over 25 years of experience in our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, so AM fungi, otherwise known as VAM fungi. And she's also on the advisory board of the Real Organic Project. So hi, Chris. Hi, Lindley. It's nice to meet you in person, sort of. <laughs> yeah, sort of in person. It's crazy. We were talking before this started uh, that we actually haven't met, even though our lives have overlapped quite a bit. So it's a privilege to get to talk to you today. And it's about time. Yes. So we overlapped at West Virginia University, and we shared a, a professor in common, uh, Dr. Joe Morton. Could you describe a little bit what you did with uh, Dr. Morton? He, he was a professor I connected with as well. Yeah. Um, well, it, it actually sort of started as an undergraduate. I got an opportunity to work in a research laboratory at the University of Minnesota. And um, as an undergraduate, it's, it's a very rare thing that you get an opportunity to work in, in the research laboratory. Um, and the professor that I worked for, uh, Ira Charvet, uh, was studying mycorrhizal fungi. And I just kind of became enamored with, with mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and yeah. sort of a little bit of a, a funny story with that. I was, I was enamored with mycorrhizal fungi and what they did. Um, but my job in working for her, because I was an undergrad, was sort of a lab tech position where you do washing dishes and all of those types of things. And you don't really end up doing research. Um, but part right. of my, yeah. So part of my job was to actually extract spores from the soil 
cool. and prep those samples for the graduate students who would look at them under the microscope and um, do spore counts and evaluation and those types of things. And I had been working uh, with her for about a year, and she came into the lab one day and she said, have you ever actually in real life seen a mycorrhizal spore? And so I was just sort of so enamored with mycorrhizal fungi and what they did that even if I didn't see them in real life, I still was connected to them. And so um, I said no. And she's like, well, get over here and take a look. And so, you know, I've been working in this lab for about a year and got to see mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and then when I decided to... Oh my to gosh, the spores are so beautiful too. They're they are. Beautiful, bright colors and different spikes and stuff. Talk a little bit about them. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. As you said, you know, you have all different colors and sizes and they have different characteristics to them that, you know, I, one of my favorite and oftentimes... I'll use as a password in some way. Uh, when I worked for the federal government, we had to change our password so frequently. <laughs> and so what I did was I used uh, mycorrhizal species as my password uh -huh. um, and would do the, the genera and, and uh, the species together. And so the, the idea was, was one of my favorite has always been um, Jagospora gigantea. And uh -huh. it's, a, it's a really cool one. The, both of the, the Jagospora's... Um, Gigantia and Rosia, uh, but the Jagospores are really interesting because when they're young and immature, they're a different color. And so Gigantia starts off as sort of a greenish color, and then it turns uh, a yellow-orange color. And then as it matures, it starts to then turn sort of a red color. Um, and, and so wow, there's a I wonder spectrum why, of colors. Right? I mean, we probably have no idea why they have these beautiful colors. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, you know, again, oftentimes you look at things that are colored and they're colored, you know, for um, animals or other organisms to pick them up and carry them to a new environment. And yeah, you're very right. You know, it's, it's really interesting on, on their colors and how they go through um, you know, these different stages and everything. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, they're, they're just, they have all of, as you said, they have all of these beautiful colors to them. And um, so I, I was working with her and uh, I was interested in ecology and ecological aspects. Um, I grew up on a farm in southwestern Minnesota, multi-generational farming family, had no desire to get involved in agriculture really wanted to get right. as far from agriculture as <laughs> I, I possibly could. I think my daughter's could. the same way. Yeah. She's like, there's no way she's going to be a farmer. <laughs> right. You know, and that's... She sees the stress, you know, yeah. the stress that her parents have. Yeah. And and so you, you see all of this and it's, you know, you want something different. And, and so yeah. um, I was interested in ecology. I fell in love with mycorrhizal fungi, uh, did more ecological focus projects when I was at the University of Minnesota. And then with Joe Morton... Um, when I was looking for going on to graduate school, I wasn't looking at particular schools. I didn't care what the school was. I wanted to work for professors that were working with mycorrhizal fungi. Yes. And I had applied uh, for an internship with uh, Joe Morton and a graduate assistantship with Joe Morton. And um, what really excited me about working with Joe was that he was really interested in um, – the evolution of mycorrhizal fungi and how they're involved in the original generation of soil, what makes soil was really what mycorrhizal fungi were involved in. And then um, how all of this kind of comes together, you know, and so it became really important to me 
when I was able to work with Joe because it was looking at these ideas of how all of these pieces could fit together, why these processes work the way that they do. And when we look at them from a very human perspective, sometimes we don't understand everything that's going on. But when we look at them from kind of an origin perspective, give them their origin story, then it starts to make sense. Um, and so, In terms of like the origin of plants on land? Or yeah. what do you mean by that origin? Well, the, the origin of plants, uh, the, the mycorrhizal fungi were involved in um, plants being able to colonize land, but also involved, as I said, with soil formation. We don't have, mm-hmm. land wasn't soil. Land mm-hmm. was sand, silt, and clay. Rock. It was inorganic. Yeah. It was rock. And and so, you know, even when you had weathering and, and breaking down of the rock material, until you had plants and mycorrhizal fungi coming onto land, you didn't have the organic component that makes soil. Soil is carbon, mm-hmm. hydrogen, and oxygen bound to the mineral matrix of sand, silt, and clay. And so... You didn't have soil until you had mycorrhizal fungi, and the mycorrhizal fungi helped the plants come onto land, and that was, again, the origin of soil. And kind of along with that, with the origin of soil, you, as, as soil then was, was amassing on land, as you had plants that were there and animals, and, and you got this large component of organic matter, Although the mycorrhizal fungi haven't changed structurally very much um, since they first created a relationship with the first land plants, they've changed some of their roles in order to be able to continue to be uh, uh, intimately involved with the plants. In order to be able to get the carbon from the plants that they need to be able to grow, they had to continue to provide something that was useful to the plants. And so originally it was, you know, helping to make soil, making an environment that you could get the formation of roots, you could get, you know, that growth and that exchange of nutrients. When you have organic matter, the nutrients are more in an exchangeable form than when they are in the mineral form. But after you've got a build, enough of a buildup of soil, then what is your job? What is it that you're going to do? How is it that you're going to help to function? And that kind of also helped as well as um, with with Joe Morton. He had worked for a while, uh, Dr. Sarah Wright, who I did my doctorate with at uh, Beltsville, Maryland with USDA. Dr. Sarah Wright had been a professor for a short period of time in West Virginia. And so she met, um, she and Joe worked together while they were professors at West Virginia University. And um, then when Sarah moved to Washington, D.C. to Beltsville, Maryland, and started working for USDA, they kept in touch. And a couple of Joe's graduate students had actually gone on and worked with Sarah. And um, so Sarah was the one who initially uh, identified glomalin, or we say discovered, but it wasn't really a discovery because it was always there. Uh-huh, <laughs> so it wasn't uh-huh. like it, we, we found something new. It was just, you know, <laughs> we, we identified it. We, we were able to now see it. And so... Yes. Um, so yeah, so Sarah was um, working with... Well, and tell everybody what glomalin is. Yeah, so Sarah was working with, with Joe, and this glycoprotein, um, so glyco is, is sugars, and the protein is an amino acid structure, so it's a sugared protein. And what it does is it actually, and again, this kind of goes back to continuing the roles that the mycorrhizal fungi would have, is what it does is 
it will um, help to glue together soil components um, into soil aggregates. So you can glue together pieces of organic matter, sand, silt, and clay, uh, and you start to form these pellets that are in the soil. And when you form those aggregates, those pellets that are in the soil, it's really important because what those pellets end up doing is they have inside their own internal structure, they'll have organic matter and they'll have minerals and they'll have, again, sand, silt, and clay. And you can get bacterial growth and fungal growth inside there as a way of protecting those microorganisms inside the aggregate. But the other thing that we'll do with those aggregates is the aggregates don't fit tightly together. So you get open space between the aggregates and that's the porosity that's in the soil that's incredibly important for making sure that you get good aeration. You want mm -hmm. um, oxygen to come into the soil and CO2 to escape from the soil. And mm -hmm. it also is really important for water movement so that the water is going to come in very rapidly. You have a lot of that open space and it's right around the root zone. And because that open space now goes around these aggregates that don't fit tightly together, it sort of bends and curves. And that keeps that water there for a longer period of time. When you think about soil water, sunlight and evaporation for evaporative forces is constantly pulling water off of the surface of the soil and gravity is constantly pulling it down. And so it's moving away from the root zone. But if you have to take a, a curvy bendy path for the water movement, it's gonna take more time or more energy to pull for those forces to pull that water away. I think of this a lot of times as, you know, you're, you're drinking out of a, a glass with a straw and that straw may have just a little kink in it and you didn't even know when you first got the straw that it had that little kink and, you know, you try and suck the, the liquid out, you know, get your water out or whatever, you know, trying to suck that out of the, the glass and you have to, you'll end up, you know, starting off just doing a normal sip and then you'll go and then you go and then, you know, finally you throw the, the straw away because... It had that those bends and kinks in it. It's the same right. thing that you have these bends and kinks that are there. Um, so glomalin helps. That's that sponge that everybody's talking about right, right now, it's right? So glomalin's crucial in creating that. Yeah, yeah, and it's crucial in creating those aggregates and gluing them together internally. But the other great thing that it does is because it has it's a sugar protein. So that sugar component is the glue component to it. But sugars and glues are often water soluble. So that doesn't keep the aggregate stabilized. It could easily fall apart because the sugars could dissolve. So the other thing that it does is, um, and this is what it does for the mycorrhizal fungi, at least what we think it does for the mycorrhizal fungi is it will coat the surface of the aggregate. And when it's coating parts of the surface of the aggregate, that doesn't let water penetrate inside the aggregate very rapidly. So okay. what happens with an aggregate is you put a lot of energy into making these clods in the soil, but when the water comes in, it can move in because there's, it, it's again, just the aggregate is not solid, it's porous. And so water will move in very, very quickly, but in that porous aggregate, when the aggregate is dry, there is air molecules, CO2, oxygen, nitrogen, gas, all of those molecules are inside there. And what ends up happening is the water can move, because of density, the water will move into the aggregate very, very quickly through all of those openings, through all of the pores that are at the surface. It'll move into that aggregate really quickly. 
And then the air molecules that are inside that aggregate, they will start to condense. They'll get pushed closer and closer together and air will become under pressure and eventually the aggregate explodes because that air pressure just blows it up. And so oh, then Chris, you, I've not heard about this. This is amazing. Yeah. So you've lost all of that work you put into creating this great sponge. Okay. It's essentially, you know, breaking up the sponge. And now you've filled all of the open spaces in the sponge with all of the little particles that were inside the aggregate. So when you put... And so is this bursting kind of important in, in some way in, in terms of, you know, keeping nutrient cycling happening or the life in the soil? It is. It, it, it's incredibly important because, again, when you have those aggregates, what ends up happening is not only is that important to maintaining that porosity and that sponge texture... And instead, you fill in all the spaces in the sponge when the aggregates blow up. But the other thing when we're looking at nutrients is inside the aggregates, as I said, you have open space, that porosity, and you have bacteria and fungi that are in there, especially the mycorrhizal fungi are growing through this aggregate inside, and they're connected back to the plant. And so inside there, the bacteria and chemical processes by the bacteria and by the mycorrhizal fungi are slowly breaking down the minerals that are inside the aggregate and releasing those nutrients. And so wow. the mycorrhizal fungi, it's, it's essentially, I think of the aggregate sometimes as like your grocery store. <laughs> and you, you want to make sure that the shelves in your grocery store are going to be stocked and continuously be stocked. And so that's what the fungi and the bacteria are doing inside the aggregate is they're stocking the shelves. And when you blow it up, it's you, you blew up the neighborhood grocery store. So now where, <laughs> where's the plant going to go now to get food? Uh-huh. And so how does a farmer take this knowledge? And you have so much, and we're going to dive into even more. <laughs> but how do they even uh, get started in terms of making sure that those interactions happen in the first place? What are some things that they need to do? Well, so it's it's important to, you know, just understand, again, how this relationship works. And so you have the, the plant that in order for the fungus to be able to grow, its body is carbon, um, just like our bodies are carbon-based. And that carbon comes from the plant, from the photosynthetic activity that the plant is doing. Mm-hmm. So... The first thing that every organism needs is an adequate food source. It needs as much food as it possibly can get. And what the fungus does, what the mycorrhizal fungi do, is they exchange the nutrients that they get from inside the aggregate or from free in the soil, and they'll exchange those to the plant for the carbon so that they can grow and they can make things like spores and they can extend their bodies, their fungal hyphae, and make glomalin and stabilize and create more aggregates, all of that stuff takes carbon. Mm -hmm. So for an individual farmer, understanding those carbon needs, what you need to have is you need to have as much carbon going below ground as possible. When we're farmers, we want carbon allocation to be above ground because that's the biomass we're harvesting. You want it to either be in the foliar tissue if you're harvesting something like uh, greens or you want it to be in the fruit or the seeds because that's what it is that you're harvesting. So there's a trade-off between the amount of carbon that is above ground and the amount of carbon that is below ground. And so one of the things that we can do is we can look at ways in which 
we can still be able to harvest the yields that we're looking for, but are there additional crops that you might be able to plant? Can you plant things like cover crops and companion crops and other things that are going to be putting more carbon below ground and adding more carbon to those to that environment? Um, so that's, a, that's, I think, one of the first big keys that farmers need to look at is what can they do to increase that carbon flux below ground. Um, and I think intuitively car, uh, farmers understand that. They, they realize that carbon is being depleted and that they can see the benefits of water retention um, and, and just the health of the crops the following year if they're able to incorporate, say, that, you know, the, the tissue after... Uh, the harvest, if they can, you know, in, incorporate some organic matter. I think that's pretty like clear, clearly understood is that we need more carbon in the soil, right? And and then somehow there's kind of a, a gap sometimes between that car connection to carbon in the soil and, you know, the release from carbon in the soil into the atmosphere right. and uh, all of the connections to climate change and everything. How do you kind of navigate those tricky issues when you're talking about soil carbon with farmers? Well, so as you're saying, I mean, I think car the, the farmers are understanding that carbon in the ground is one of the most important things they want to have and how to be able to increase that. And, um, you know, looking at, at different mechanisms, uh, growing more plants, managing residue, all of those things can be a, a great part of, of being able to keep that carbon flowing below ground. But you also need to think about, again, when we're talking about issues with uh, climate change or carbon emissions from the soil, we're always going to have carbon emissions from the soil because every organism is doing respiration. The roots, that's mm -hmm. their, you know, we think about plants and we're like, oh yeah, they release all of this oxygen. They also release a lot of CO2. They release that CO2 from their root zone, um, not from their, their foliar tissue, but they're releasing CO2 because they have to do respiration just like we do. They consume carbon in order to be able to live. And, and so they're giving off CO2. The microorganisms below ground are giving off CO2. But one of the things that we can do with this is actually look at how we might be able to manage that organic matter that, that carbon that's there in different ways so that it can get transformed into different molecules. So we're basically just kind of cycling it and having it move through organisms that are in the soil. So yeah, yeah. if you take just to the me, carbon... that's such the crux of, of organic farming is that, and I almost feel like it should be based not on whether it's a synthetic uh, fertilizer or or not, but whether it's a slow release fertilizer, because yes. there's so many organically approved soluble fertilizers that I feel like go counter to the those tenants of you know a slow release carbon and in order to cycle the nutrients in a way that you know keeps them in the soil over the long term and isn't just a fast feed. Exactly, and I think that that's a it's a great thing about what's happening now with the Real Organic Project, with other groups that are looking at organic differently than, than organic has been, has been looked at. Because organic, um, you know, I, I was privileged when I worked at the Rodale Institute, I was able to go to China a few times. And when I was there, it was interesting to talk with the uh, groups in China because what they were looking for was they just wanted to know that replacement for synthetics that was certified organic. 
And it didn't right. matter if it was slow release. It didn't matter the nature of it. Just as long as it was certified organic, that's what we want. Yeah. And that's not what organic is. It is about the soil. It is, again, kind of going back to that origin story. It is about how the nature of this ecological environment was created and is maintained and how we can go about regenerating it. So, you know, there are a lot of bridges with organic and the real organic project and regenerative agriculture. And so it's looking at, again, how can we regenerate this environment and regrow this environment in a way that is going to be able to provide those synergies. And it isn't just about replacement. It's actually working with all of these mechanisms that the organisms are doing. We may not understand all of the mechanisms that the organisms are doing, but we are getting knowledge on what may be happening in that environment. And so all along, we're, it's sort of building our knowledge base. I mean, you know, like you talked about, we don't know why the mycorrhizal fungi have spores that are so colored the way they are. We don't know why a lot of these things happen, but what it does tell us is that there are a number of things that are going on that are helping to keep this environment growing and active and providing those um, nutrients, providing the resources that the plants need to, to grow. Plants and microorganisms, especially the mycorrhizal fungi, evolve together. And, you know, plants and animals and microorganisms all evolve together. And we've worked very intensely in agriculture, uh, especially for about the last 70 years, to kind of decouple all of those things. Yeah. And we need to put them all back together and focus on the synergies because it doesn't work to just say that we can come along with a, a, a chemical or with a replacement, whether it's, you know, synthetic fertilizers or uh, mineral fertilizers that are organic, that isn't coupling those things back together. That is, it, it's still us saying, okay, we can control all of this stuff that goes on. And there's so much all the time that I'm learning um, almost on a daily basis of new things. You know, it's, it's exciting and fun, but it's frustrating at the same time because you have all of these new things that are happening. Yeah, I think the little bit of humbleness is something organic farmers have always just trusted in nature and let their system, mimic their systems because there's too much that we don't know. You know, one of the things that I remember doing with Joe Morton was um, when we inoculated tomato plants, we actually couldn't get that interaction to happen. We couldn't get the plant to accept the mycorrhizal fungi, you know, in a pot um, where, where both we had inoculated the soil with the spores, um, unless there was a limitation in the amount of fertilizer that we gave yeah. that tomato. So can you describe that and why we need to make sure that we're not just pouring uh, you know, fertilizers on our soils because you actually won't get the soil life interacting with the plants when, when there are nutrients readily available. Right. So again, this goes back to the, the mycorrhizal fungi and many of the organisms either directly or indirectly are feeding off of carbon that comes from the plant. So the mycorrhizal fungi feed directly off of carbon that comes directly from the plant. Other organisms may do it more indirectly um, you know, feeding off of exudates or other things like that, or organisms, they eat organisms that eat exudates. Um, 
but it's it's all in these cascading effects these interwoven effects that are happening there and what ends up occurring is that if the plant has enough nutrients that are given to it by us it doesn't need to get any more from the organisms that are there and especially this this especially occurs uh, with how we time a lot of our nutrient additions because oftentimes we'll give plants enough nutrients for their whole life cycle fairly early on in their life cycle and the plants can only you know when they're small they can only take up so much of those nutrients and so you need to have those time release nutrients that are kind of feeding the plant a slow amount a little bit throughout the growing season not all at once at the very beginning. And you need that to happen so that when the plant starts to get a little stressed or starts to starve a little bit, before it gets overstressed, you don't wanna do stress to the point of injury, but if you have a little bit of stress that's there, then the plant says, you know what? I remember if I give off carbon to these organisms, they will pay me in the nutrients I need. It's a, it's a barter system. And, you know, again, I, I talk a lot about origins, but in reality, every organism, including us, work for food. We've always worked for food. We've, we've in our societies, we've changed that where we've replaced food with paper, colored paper or coins. But the reality is, is the basis of all of what we're trying to do is to work for food because we, no organism can live without food. And so... The, what happens with the microorganisms is if there isn't that little bit of stress, if the plant has everything it needs for free, because we gave it to the plant, and for the plant, that's free. It's right there. Who really cares, you know, with the plant that we spent money on buying these nutrients and applying them? The plant's like, yeah, okay, I'll take it. Give me, give me more. And so the plant doesn't care whether it works with mycorrhizal fungi or not. It just needs those nutrients. And so you have these relationships that are occurring now where um, we are finding and we're finding this not just, you know, if in a pot culture system, we don't add enough of a stressor that we don't get the mycorrhizal relationship. Um, we're also finding uh, some of the more modern crop varieties because of the way that we've gone about breeding and selection under high input systems, I mean, that's when we do breeding and selection, we're looking for everything above ground and we're not thinking about what's happening below ground. And mm -hmm. so when you do that, you end up having a system where um, they put in a high enough inputs, they may, you know, remove one input or something like that if they're trying to test for, for some particular characteristic. But what they're really trying to know is if you put in enough inputs, how high of a yield can you have? And when your focus is on that, again, you're, I, I refer to it as basically outsourcing the jobs of the microbial community. And we're really good job outsourcers um, in a lot of our modern agriculture, uh, especially in a lot of convention, conventional agriculture. But it also is one of those things that behooves us to think about it with organic producers as well of you know, that, that slow release is really important, timing is really important, and how much you want to add so that you are stimulating that microbial community. 
Yeah, and so so what you're essentially saying is that it's really crucial to understand that the life in the soil is necessary if we want to wean ourselves from synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. But let's start with the question of why we even would want to do that. There are many farmers that say, hey, you know, I'm getting high yields. Why? What are some of the external costs of using uh, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides? Why do we need to wean ourselves from those? Well, beyond just the the uh, cost to the individual producer, I mean, like I said, to the plant, it's free. To you, it's not. Um, right. And, you know, we, we, we started talking about the fact that, that farming is, is very stressful. Uh, it's The margins are really slim. It's really tough to, to be able to make money as a farmer. And so anything that you could reduce, anything that you could do to reduce your costs in the end is going to be far more beneficial than the things that you would do to increase your yield. And, and the are reason, we talking about costs over a five-year time span, right? It's, 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 you yeah. kind of have to look at it a little bit longer than like next year, I'm going to make, you know, the highest yields, but right. you know, there might yeah. be costs later on for what you yeah. did. So kind of what time span would this all work if, say, if you wanted to convert from conventional farming to uh, an organic system? So yeah, in a, in a three to five year time span, you definitely would start to see some advantages in these costs. You're, you're always going to have, farming always will work this way. One, because of uh, pricing um, and production on a, on a global scale, you're always going to have an oscillation. You always have peaks and valleys, high yield years, low yield years, no matter what you try and do, Weather conditions, pricing, all of those things will impact your economics. So over time, you're always going to be doing this. Now the advantage is, is your average. So even though you're going to have going into organic farming and reducing these inputs isn't going to remove those peaks and valleys. You're still going to have them. But the idea is, is maybe your peaks may not be so high, but your valleys won't be so low. And at the same time, your average is going to be here as opposed to your average being here. Mm. And that's what it is that you're looking for. So again, looking at it long term, not on an annual basis, but looking at it long term in, you know, a, a, at least a three to five year time step, but probably even closer to a 10 year time step, you'll really be able to see where that average is, that difference between being here as opposed to being there. And that's really what it is that you're looking for, is that different height average um, in, in your overall uh, net. So, you know, not your gross, because your gross is going to go like this, but you, you reduce some of your um, costs, and so your net is going to be more like this. And especially as we look towards the future, um, one of the advantages of utilizing biological processes is that the mechanisms that they have in place for managing nutrients and managing pests and diseases are because there are millions of different species that can exist in the soil environment. Um, and they're going to play a number of different roles and they have multiple mechanisms to address those issues. The mycorrhizal fungi can pick up nutrients that are freely available in the soil, but they can also help to pick up nutrients that may be bound up. They'll work with other organisms or they'll produce uh, enzymes to release nutrients that may be bound up in the soil and are less available. 
They'll help to break down organic matter and release those nutrients. So they have a broad spectrum of mechanisms to be able to manage nutrient acquisition. They also have a broad spectrum of, of mechanisms to help to manage pest and disease relationships. Some of them are just by colonizing the roots of the plants, the mycorrhizal fungi can stimulate some defense responses on the part of the plant, whereas if they start colonizing the plant before any other rootborne pathogens do, it reduces the ability of those rootborne pathogens to get into the plant itself. You're um, talking about induced resistance there, yeah, right? Yeah. Go, dive into that a little more. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So what, what ends up happening is when we look at these relationships, it's like they're, they're supposed to be these great symbiotic interactive relationships and both partners want each other to work together. And as I said, with kind of the carbon thing is the plant doesn't care if it has mycorrhizal fungi or not. The plant, what the plant cares about is I need to have enough nutrients and I need resistance against pests and diseases. Mm -hmm. So part of what happened with the mycorrhizal fungi is when they started this relationship, they actually will penetrate inside the cell walls of the, the plant itself. So they penetrate inside the root cell walls and that penetration is um, it's harmful to the plant itself. It's something that the plant says, I don't really want that. So the plant then induces a stress response to that. It, it induces its defense responses. So it will um, reinforce the wall structure for around the remaining roots. It will produce various types of exudates that can help to resist pests and diseases coming into the roots. So it will basically wall off once it gets penetrated, it will wall off those roots so that they don't get penetrated by something else. And so you're basically inducing a, a disease resistance by having this organism enter to begin with. Um, and, you know, it just, turn, it just so turns out that instead of being a, a pathogen that's going to be breaking down the plant tissue, when the mycorrhizal fungi enter in, they don't do that same type of disease pressure that many pathogens do. They don't break down the plant tissue. Um, they just say, can I have some carbon? Which right. on some level is almost like a pathogenic relationship anyway, because they're saying, give me food. But the beautiful thing with it too, is that for the most part, the plant gets something that it needs in exchange. It's a, it's a barter system as opposed to a robbing system that happens with pathogens. And these are really intimate interactions. I mean, we're talking about getting through both cell walls. Yes. Right? And, yeah. and having cell membrane to membrane contact within the cells. It's a beautiful thing to look at on, under the microscope. It's really intimate. Yeah. And, and the, the beauty of that, by having that close contact, means that the other reason why this is so advantageous is the, the exchange, the barter process is happening near membranes that are next to each other that are very intimately associated and so there's very little loss of either carbon going into the mycorrhizal fungus or of the nutrients coming out of the fungus into the plant. There's hmm. just a, a minute space that you have to have um, carriers bring across the membranes of these organisms. But if you are separated, resources. yeah, if you're separated by a wall, by walls, 
Now you have an extra layer, so there's more resources that are needed to move across those walls. But then if you're even separated by space, so if the organism is out in the soil, and you have, so you have an organism that's out in the soil, and you have the root that's here, that space means that carbon comes out of here, but the carbon doesn't know that it's got to go right here. The carbon is, is flowing out of the roots passively. It, uh -huh. it can't be directed. So you have passive flow that happens across here. And so you get carbon that may be way out here that doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't feed the mycorrhizal fungus or it doesn't feed whatever organism is out here. And the same thing is for this organism. When this organism releases nutrients that are out here, that they passively move towards the roots, which means that the, the space, the distance between them is very important. So the closer you are, the more efficient the exchange is. Yeah. And when you have that distance, and so again, even with the use of um, slow release organic nutrients that you have, if you still have those spatial differences that are there that right. the mycorrhizal right. fungus can't help to bridge, your efficiency of the nutrients from here getting into the plant, that distance reduces the efficiency. So the further away it is, the less efficient the process becomes, which is why we do a lot when we are adding nutrients. Um, we'll do a lot with how we place them because we want them to be as close to the roots as they can. The further away mm -hmm. that they are, we know that that's going to reduce their efficiency. How much gets uptake, how much gets taken up by the plant. So we want to make sure that those things are going to be happening and, and have that really close intimate relationship. So the most efficient thing that you could do is inside the roots, have this very efficient, intimate relationship where there's very little loss because they're right up against each other. So you get almost 100% exchange. Also, out in the soil, if you have those aggregates and the fungus is growing through the aggregate, the fungus is inside of here, and it's very efficient at how it can pick up those nutrients. And over time, you know, I talked about some of the nutrients that it'll pick up are nutrients that are freely available in the soil, but it can also help to pick up nutrients that are unavailable in the soil. And one of the, the biggest issues that we can have for a nutrient that's unavailable in the soil is phosphorus. Mm -hmm. And phosphorus becomes readily unavailable in the soil, but you have uh, various types of bacteria that are phosphate solubilizing bacteria. And because of their size, you know, bacteria are so small. They can be just microns in size. And because of their size, it's hard for them to move in that whole big volume of soil to get to where the phosphorus is that they need to solubilize and make available, much less for that to get back to the plant. You know, I'm, I'm the plant here, and the bacteria is, you know, floating around here, and the phosphorus is here. This is, this is going to take a lot of energy for me to get to here and then get this back to the plant. There's a lot of loss that's going to happen over that time. So one of the things that over time happened was this phosphate solubilizing bacteria has actually attached itself to the walls of the mycorrhizal fungi. So they're essentially anchored in, 
anchored on the wall of the mycorrhizal fungi. So as the fungi are growing through the soil or through the aggregate, they kind of like snuggled up in the glomalin or where yeah, are they hanging they're, out? They're they're basically anchored on on the wall. They anchor themselves to the to the fungal wall, and so as the fungus is going, you know, they're able to. We don't really know for sure if if glomalin may be involved in this or not, but it, it definitely is something where we we found them anchored on the wall. And so it, it, it essentially, the fungus is now like a train taking them <laughs> to the place they need to be and connecting them on the rail line back to the plant. So the, the fungus then gets, it, it takes the phosphorus that gets solubilized by the bacteria out here. So the bacteria get a free ride to here. They solubilize the phosphorus. Then that phosphorus is now going to be coming back through the fungal hyphae, through that rail line back to the plant, the plant gives the fungus a bunch of carbon, not just to feed the fungus, but now to feed the bacteria. And so intelligence in the system too. I remember seeing a video of a Spitzenkorper at the front of the, you know, hyphal, mycorrhizal hyphae, just, you yeah. know, kind of dictating where this hyphae is going to grow. Describe that a little bit, the intelligence that that the mycorrhizae have in terms of which direction they want to go yeah. in the soil. Yeah. So, you know, I said that a lot of this just free in the soil happens very passively. But what we, we are finding is that you get, and, and part of this too is related to some of the things they're looking at with things like quorum sensing, where you get a, a bunch of different organisms growing in, a, in an environment. So they respond to a condition that exists. So again, the phosphorus is out here. So now you get a bunch of different organisms that are going to be a bunch of bacteria that are going to be out there that are going to be releasing that phosphorus. And so they give off signals that attract the train and tell the train to come this way. So it's, it's all sort of in these biochemical signals that are happening, but it helps to have that directionality to it. And when you get enough organisms and enough signals in one place, that helps to direct the, the direction that the hyphae is going to move. So it'll be responding so to those signals. Yeah. And, and so I want to go back to why, like, clearly this is so cool. And we just have, you know, the very, we're, we're understanding like the tip of the iceberg of, yeah. of the interactions that go on in the soil. But why does this matter? Why do we care if our soil is alive? Well, again, going back to why, why we care is, I know it's cheaper for the farmer it's, over it's, time. It's cheaper for right? the farmer over that. time. But it also is going to be better for the, the whole entire environment to be able to be working on all of these different relationships. Because if you try and, again, we don't understand everything that's going on here, but if you try to replace th those activities with other things, with other technology that we might have, the amount of, of resources that it's going to cost to be able to do that. And, and part of it is also kind of the damage to the environment. That whole thing of making that spongy structure is about us not just being able to have that spongy structure so that water can get in and it'll be in the root zone and it'll feed the plants, but it also is a way to help us manage things like flooding issues. Um, you know, I, I worked for a long time in North Dakota. Uh, I was in the center of the state in Bismarck Mandan area, but the Red River Valley is not too far away. And the Red River Valley uh, is, was essentially created, it's part of the lake bottom of Glacial Lake Agassiz. 
which was a huge inland sea. Um, I remember seeing like the blackest soils I've ever seen in my life there. Is yeah. that what you're going to describe? Yeah. So they're, they're incredibly yeah. nutrient rich. And mm. so it became an environment in which we did, agriculture was very profitable because it was, when you, when you have a lake bottom, the organic matter and the minerals settle to the bottom of the lake. And so lake bottom soils are, are really rich. Uh, and then after the water all evaporated and the lake went away, you had what was left behind. But part of the issue of that settling is those materials are also in very fine structures. They didn't get formed into aggregates because they just settled as fine particles at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So they're all really, really fine materials. And that can make it really nice to grow some root crops like sugar beets and potatoes because you don't have really heavy, root-dense, cloddy structure of soil to have the equipment go through for planting and harvesting root crops like potatoes and sugar beets. So right. very fine textured soils, but very fine textured soils are also very apt to erosion. Okay. And because it, when, when you, wind, yeah. yeah, wind and, and a little bit of water, it doesn't take a lot to move very fine particles. If they're okay. in clods, if they're in aggregates, it takes more energy to move you. So you're more resistant to wind. Um, so you get a lot more loss in that environment when you don't get the structure. So after the lake evaporated, after the water evaporated, what we needed to have was we needed to have, and this was what came in, was sort of a short to mid-grass prairie that the grasses then induced uh, the formation of a lot of aggregates and that whole structure. But then when we would come in and do practices planting root crops and utilizing, it's also potatoes and sugar beets are a very nutrient-intensive, pest and disease-intensive type of system where we're adding a lot of chemicals in order to be able to manage those crops. And part mm -hmm. of it is, is because, because they were nutrient rich, we didn't really connect with the microorganisms that were below ground when we planted them. And then we did a lot of destructive processes with a lot of the tillage that we're doing. And so, you know, in organic agriculture, there is a lot of debate and a lot of issues about tillage. Um, and within organic, it is important to keep in mind, you know, when I, when I work with organic producers, I'm like, you want to think of tillage as the tool of last resort in the same way that you want a conventional producer to think about synthetic chemicals. Think about tillage in that same mechanism. Why am I doing it? When do I have to do it? How frequently do I have to do it? And what types of tools can I use? Because mm -hmm. the more volume of soil that you're destroying with, with tillage, the more issues you're going to have. Because that destruction can physically break apart soil aggregates. But the other thing it does is for things like mycorrhizal fungi, it can tear apart the fungal hyphae. I mean, it's basically like ripping off limbs. Yeah, you may not kill the whole organism right away, but... Now, instead of carbon being used by the mycorrhizal fungus to grow further out into the soil and build more aggregates and create more glomalin and do all of these things, it now has to regrow limbs 
And so frequency becomes a really big issue with tillage. Is if yeah, you someone... and describe, I mean, we think of these as, you know, microbes is really right. small, but is it our malaria that's like, uh, yes. what is it? The largest like organisms in the world or, yeah. Yeah, are, are, are mushroom producing fungi. Um, uh-huh. they're, the largest one is in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in Oregon and Northern California. Um, but the second largest ones are in Michigan State. Um, and, and so, and they're like 1500 years old yeah, or something crazy yeah, they're, like that. They're over 2000 years old, 40 acres. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and so, you know, they, although their bodies, the individual threads are microscopic, the mass that they're growing into is, is huge. And so the amount of material that they have, and yeah, it may not seem like a big deal to, you know, and I shouldn't say it's ripping off a limb, but yeah, you know, it's. Maybe you lose a finger. It may not seem like a big deal to lose a finger, but then try and do certain activities without that finger. <laughs> um, yeah. It can be a bigger deal than what you think it, that it is. Um, and, and so, again, what it, it all comes down to efficiencies in energy and carbon. And so if you have to put work now into regrowing a finger – and you have to do that multiple times throughout the growing season, it's hard for you to get any bigger than you are. You're not going to put on more fingers. You're not going to get any bigger than you are if you're constantly in the process of having to rebuild your own body. And this is important because they're dumping carbon into your soil. Yeah. Right? Through that liquid carbon pathway. Exactly. I don't think we even... Let's back up and just describe that that beautiful, you know, transfer of carbon, um, you know, through photosynthesis and, and about how much plants put into the soil. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 47. Please join us next time when we'll continue our conversation with today's guest, soil microbiologist, Chris Nichols. We'll dive right in where we left off and unpack how farmers can sequester even more carbon into their soils if they think about their production practices. To find a real organic farm near you, in the meantime, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. See you next time. Mm-hmm.